As we get going this morning, as you can probably tell, my voice is not all that good, as my beloved had informed you guys. We want to, uh, I want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, uh, we have a prayer bulletin every couple of weeks. We update it, and so please take this and please pray through it. Uh, this is, these are some really good things uh, that we need to go before the Lord about. Prayer requests, praises, so it's, it's all right here. So let's, uh, let's take advantage of this. You're going to hear another voice today. Brother Jason is going to help out with uh, some of the reading of the Scripture today. We have a lot of verses that we're going to cover, and so uh, we're, we're going to do that. Well, some of you remember a little while back when we were going through the book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. If you've gone through it, you know that is a phenomenal work, uh, The Discipline of Grace. Bridges used 242 pages or pixels worth, I should say, of fleshing out what Paul told his friends in Philippi in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. As followers of Christ, they were to work out their salvation, and we are to do the same with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in them both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that all of us who follow Christ have come under His discipline, sometimes His severe discipline. Can I get an amen on that one? But even here, we can rejoice that because as the writers to the Hebrews tells us, this is exactly what the Lord does with all of His sons and His daughters. And so if you will, I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 11, to see these words. And maybe it would be a good idea to read them throughout the week to remind us of the discipline of the Lord, because the Lord does discipline all of His sons and all of His daughters. So follow with me, if you will. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true? But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Today, we have a front row seat, as it were, witnessing the Lord apply the discipline of grace to His people. However, it's not the New Testament era people we're talking about, but we're talking about God's Old Testament era people. We might even want to call it a severe mercy. But in His mercy... In God's tough love discipline, we know that God does this, and it's never without a purpose. Because we live in a fallen world, we all have inherited a natural bent toward evil. Isn't that right? But God's salvation, ultimately offered us in Christ, changes us from the inside out. His grace begins to work in our lives to make us more like Jesus in this life. And we are absolutely confident that God will accomplish His goal when He's all said and done, when He's finished with us. Paul tells us this in Philippians 1.6. 
He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a long-term project. It's a marathon here. But as it is with all of God's people, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We are all works in progress if we know Christ, right? As we remember Paul in his letter to one of his mentees, Titus, describing grace, he put it like this in Titus 2, 11 to 14. And so I want you to turn there with me as well. Again, to see these words in our Bibles. You might want to read Hebrews uh, 12 and also Titus 2 this week. And if you don't, if you're having trouble trying to find Titus in the New Testament, all the T's are together. And so look for the T's, and there you go. The last T is Titus, Titus 2, 11 to 14. And we're going to hear how Paul describes what grace is and what grace does. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the description of grace. This is what grace does in the life of a Christian. Now, of course, Israel in Moses' day did not have the details that we do about Jesus and the salvation and what grace is. But as we're going to see today, they did gain a first-hand knowledge of training that goes along with the grace of God. And we're going to see this, again, severe discipline, a severe mercy. But as we remember, Deuteronomy is really good news. It is the gospel according to Moses. This book outlines in wondrous detail what it means for God's redeemed people to live in covenant relationship with Him. All of the blessings for heartfelt obedience to His ways and all of the curses that lie in store for those who claim to live in relationship with Him but live their lives as though they neither know Him or His ways. Now, this book of the law, the Torah as it's called, is laid out in the form of an ancient treaty called the suzerain vassal Treaty. The suzerain, a vastly superior king, has made a covenant with his vassals, vastly inferior people. Well, several weeks ago, we saw the first part of the treaty simply listing Yahweh, whom we know as the suzerain, and Israel as his vassals. That's the first part of this treaty. The last time we studied Deuteronomy, we begin the part of the treaty called the historical prologue, sort of like what we did last week when we celebrated our ninth anniversary of Grace United. We took a walk down memory lane, and that's what the historical prologue is all about in these kinds of treaties. In Deuteronomy 1, 6-9, Moses reminded the people of the blessing of God in that he oversaw Abraham's descendants grow in numbers to be even more than the stars of heaven. But along with the Lord's blessing came Moses' need. Moses needed help in leading multiplied hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that made up the nation of Israel to fulfill the mission God gave them. And after reminding the people of the setup of their leadership, 
both in civilian terms and also in military terms. Moses then recounts their journey. And so let's pick up Moses retelling their history in Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 46, quite a few verses, because this story all hangs together. We're going to read through it, and along the way, I'm going to make a, a few pointers here and there, so just call me you know, Kermit the, the tour guide here today. So let's begin reading verses 19 through 21 of Deuteronomy 1. Then we set out from Horeb, went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. As the Lord our God commanded us, and as we came to Kadesh Barna, I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In one verse, specifically verse 19, Moses sums up, and he even omits a couple of the things that the people went through as they began their journey. And let's just say that their journey didn't exactly start out at the right foot, okay? Right off the bat, there were a couple of times that the people literally threw a fit. They were training themselves not to live pleasing to the Lord, but to have a complaining spirit. Anybody identify with a complaining spirit? There was this little episode of not being satisfied with God's provision of manna in Numbers chapter 11. They literally cried real tears when they thought about the food they ate as slaves in Egypt. And then in Numbers 12, Moses' own brother and sister rebelled against Moses' authority that God gave him. And God struck Miriam with leprosy as a result. See, in both cases, the Lord judged the people. But sadly, there was more to come. They arrived at the southernmost part of the land of promise. Get these, as God commanded us. Don't you love those words? As God commanded. They did what the Lord commanded them to do. Savor those words because that's going to be the last time in this sordid story we're going to hear those words. See, they continued to live in disobedience to the king. To the suzerain, but at this point, they actually went there in obedience to the Lord. And like a commander giving encouragement to his troops before going into battle, Moses reminded the people of why they were at Kadesh Barnea. They were to take the land from the Amorites by military force. It was judgment time. Remember what God told Abraham about 400 years prior to this moment. Abraham, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. I will bring them back to this land, my land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is what God told Abraham. So what was God doing all this time while his people were slaves in Egypt? He was preparing them for battle. God was raising up his people as an instrument of judgment upon the Amorites. See, the Amorites were given 400 years to repent of their sin, but they did not do this. They didn't repent of their iniquity, and now holy God was being true to his word. And so now that they had arrived at Kadesh Barnea, at the southernmost border of the promised land, the Lord through Moses gave them the green light. Take the land, fight the Amorites. 
But you know, time fails us to trace through the scriptures the number of times that the Lord raises up one nation to judge the wickedness of other nations. Think Assyria and the northern tribes of Israel. Think Babylon and Judah and on and on. And in our day, though we don't like to think about it, could it be that God is preparing another nation, raising up another nation to judge us? See, our national sins are heaped up to heaven, aren't they? And if God doesn't pour out a revival upon us, as somebody had said it, if God doesn't judge us, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Our national sins are a stench in God's nostrils. We got to pray for revival or pray that God prepares us for the onslaught that's to come. But don't you marvel, though, at God's patience and God's kindness toward us in the midst and even in spite of our wickedness and sin. It's amazing that God hasn't destroyed us already. But I praise God for His, for His marvelous mercy. But now back to the story, um, verses 22 to 25. Then all of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went into the hill country, and came to the valley of Eshkol, and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Uh Uh-oh. Red flags here. What did God tell the people to do? Take the land. Go in. Do it. But what did the people do? Sent spies. In Moses' recollection, the people pulled what amounted to a delay tactic. Perhaps the people wanted to see what they were up against. But they didn't need to know what they were up against. And when the rubber met the road... They suffered a little corporate amnesia, I think. See, I guess that's what a complaining spirit produces. They forgot that just a year prior to this episode was that little Red Sea thingy. One would have or should have concluded that if God had told them to do something, that he had already set it out, he had already prepared it, go take the land that God's warriors would have slapped on their swords and would have taken off and done what he said. We don't have time to read Numbers 13, but this is the the story of the spies going into the land. Twelve spies were sent. The trip lasted 40 days. What did they find after they traveled the land, going from south to north and back south again? Extremely good news. A very fruitful land, just as the Lord described it. Wait for it. Well, duh. Hey, 12 spies, do you think the Lord was lying when he described the land as flowing with milk and honey? Why did you need validation when the Lord told you to go? Didn't need validation. Just go and do what I said. But that's like us so often, isn't it? This is our human condition. We have a tendency to walk by sight 
when it comes to God commanding us to do what He wants us to do. But here's the problem. The longer we wait to obey the Lord, the more difficult it becomes. Isn't that true? How many times have you told the Lord, you know, I'm going to go make things right with my brother, my sister, but we never quite get around to doing it. How many years go by before you actually begin to apply the disciplines of Scripture memory and meditation? How many non-Christians put off getting right with the Lord and then discover that their time has passed them by? You know, it's been said that many who plan on coming to Christ at midnight die at 11.30. So a delay of 40 days caused Israel a lot of problems. Because what happened? Let's go to 26 to 33 of Deuteronomy 1. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us up out of the land of Egypt and given us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this world, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents, in the fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. So what was the issue? We would call it fear or trust. But what was God's assessment of the situation? Rebellion. Their delay by sending the spies into the land before the battle diminished their obedience by faith. They walked by sight. And what did they see? Cities with walls fortified up to heaven. People greater and taller than they. And many more enemies than they bargained for. In Numbers 13, 29, the spies found and reported back to the people in, the pres- uh, in their presence, to all the people, that not only did they see one nation, they saw five nations. The Lord told Israel that they were to attack who? The Amorites. They also found the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, and the sons of Anakim, who were who? The giants. Now, we're going to talk about the sons of Anakim, not today, but later on in another message. See, the spies... They saw a situation much more complicated than they originally thought. And so when they saw these things and reported back, what did they conclude? The Lord hates us. He brought us out of Egypt only to give us into the hands of the Amorites. They're going to destroy us. And to make matters worse, in Numbers 14, 1 to 4, we find out that not only did they murmur in their tents, but they cried real tears again. They worked themselves up into a frenzy, and they began to choose leaders that they might actually lead them back to Egypt. In other words, their rebellion 
totally hardened their hearts. They falsely accused the Lord of wanting to kill them. They claimed that the reason why the Lord delivered them from Egypt was to destroy them. And God had enough. Long story short here, the Lord barred his people from entering his land, God's land, for 40 years. One year for every day they delayed to obey the Lord. And this is the heart of the story. The people falsely accused the Lord, and their fear-based false accusation was the basis of their rebellion. And this raised God's ire. In their rebellion, they refused to be God's instrument of judgment upon the Amorites and instead accused the Lord of actually giving them into the hands of the Amorites. Instead of going into the land, they believed that scary spy story and forgot all about the Lord's power and provision and authority over the enemy. And even after Joshua, after Caleb and Moses tried to restrain their madness and calm them down, the people would have none of it. And who cannot resonate with this? I think of how we so often treat the Lord or even mistreat the Lord. When we're really distraught, I mean really distraught, and no relief in sight, the last thing we want to hear is some well-meaning Christian give off a Bible verse that really gives us some good comfort and good wisdom. We don't want to hear that so much, do we? How many times do we even disdain well-meaning Christians who try to encourage us with precious truth like, you know, God works all things together for good to those who love Him and call according to His purpose. We don't want to hear that kind of thing oftentimes. Instead of being appreciative of their attempt to love us, what do we do? We so often judge their motives. Ask me how I know. Our culture has trained us very well that any difficulty in life is bad. And let me emphasize the word any. When was the last time that we said no to ourselves for the sake of someone else? And on a positive side, when was the last time that we deliberately inconvenienced ourselves to serve someone else in the name of the Lord? That's called denying ourselves. And that's discipleship, square one. Remember how the Lord Jesus told us that if anyone would choose to come after him, to deny himself, denial of self is where Christian discipleship begins. But when we're in pain due to a horrific circumstance in our lives, the pain is what we focus on. It's natural. It's normal, isn't it? But how many stay there in the pain? All too quickly, we forget what the Lord has done in our past. And tragically, sometimes we even forget our present relationship with the Lord. But it's at that moment that we stand at a crossroads. And this is called a test of faith. And if we're not careful, we may do what Israel did, falsely accuse the Lord. I know a man who committed his life to Christ as a single young man. He married a beautiful girl. They had a great marriage. He fathered two daughters. He and his wife could not be happier. They had everything going for them in life. One could say that theirs was a match made in heaven. It was ideal. 
until, until one day, one of his daughters was at a party, and she got horribly abused. And he went into shock. But it was normal, obviously, it was normal. But what did he do? He yielded to the temptation of falsely accusing God. And he couched it kind of like this. God, you could have prevented my daughter's abuse, but you did not do it. And that means that you are not powerful enough to prevent evil. And over the course of time, he reasoned himself out of faith in God. He chose no longer to place his faith in the Lord. And he chose to place his faith in the idea that God does not exist. And that's where he is even to this day. My heart breaks for him. But did he have the right to pin this on God? The truth is that we live in a fallen world. We all are subject to the sins of others, aren't we? But we're in the middle of God's Operation Redemption. And all things will be made right in His time, in His way. But think about your life and mine. When we go through excruciating pain, is it fair of us to blame God? To falsely accuse Him? How did we get here? How do people get here to falsely accuse Him? Can it be that so many people who even claim to be Christians falsely accuse the Lord who sent His Son to save them? Could it be that in our zeal or the zeal of the person giving the gospel to wrap it up in good words of benefit and the love of God that the gospel is proclaimed in an unbalanced way, a way that communicates to the sinner that God will never give us hard times? I mean, after all, we're kids of the King, and God only gives his kids, good things. And when the hard times come, because they do, don't they? What happens to those people who receive that kind of a gospel? They basically say, I didn't sign up for this. And they fall away. They conclude that God is not good after all. But don't misunderstand. The gospel is good news, is it not? Our king loved us and took our place on the cross, dying for our sins and rising again from the dead. He bore our sins on himself, in himself, so we don't have to. We are free from sin, and now we're free to serve the Lord. Hallelujah. And so when we share the gospel, let's make sure that when we do this, we give the complete story and not just the beneficial part. As I mentioned last week, we don't follow Jesus primarily for personal benefits, although those personal benefits are great. We follow Jesus because of who He is. And so let's allow the King to simply be the King in our lives. Can we trust Him when He allows painful situations to come into our lives? But there's more tragedy in our story today. Verses 34 to 40, Deuteronomy 1. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. In short, the Lord, in his anger, told them to turn around and go back toward the Red Sea. In other words, the door to the land of promise was now closed. But amazingly, even though the Lord closed the door to the promised land to his people for a long time, he was not done with them. This is grace, a severe discipline, but incredible grace. And we're going to end the story on the high note of grace in a bit. But first, let's take a, yet, a look at yet another tragic episode in this very sordid story, 41 to 46. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God has commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought, it is easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. So a question. Did the Israelites end up obeying the Lord? Yes, they did. They even confessed their sins. Every one of them slapped on their instruments of war. They were motivated to fight the Amorites. But what changed? How was it that they went from weeping, refusing to believe God's promise, provision, and command, ready to return to Egypt, to that of confessing their sin, and then donning their weapons of war? Did they suddenly wake up from their bout of Corporate amnesia? And one would think, God must be pleased. They turned around. They confessed their sin. They repented of their refusal to go into the land. They strapped on their weapons. They engaged in the battle. But what was God's response to all that activity? What was his assessment? Another rebuke. He called it rebellion. Even though they obeyed the original command, God still called that rebellion. Why? Because the deed was done. The consequences were set. God decreed they were not entering the land for 40 years, and God meant it. And here is a hard lesson for all of us. Sin takes its toll. And sometimes, not all the time, praise God for not all the time, but sometimes the Lord allows us to experience the consequences of our sin, doesn't He? Even if we confess our sin. For example, take Tom 
a young man, loves the Lord with all of his heart, high schooler, wants to go to college, wants to be a pastor, go to seminary. And along the way, he meets a beautiful young woman named Tammy. Tammy's religious, but not a Christian. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Tom and Tammy end up getting married. They are now unequally yoked because Tom is a Christian and Tammy is not. And soon after the wedding, reality sets in. And the more Tom tries to serve the Lord, the more irritated Tammy gets. Things never get bad enough for the divorce. But Tom's plans are dead because he married a non-Christian. And tragically, in this scenario, Tammy went to her grave without Christ. Or take Susie. Susie claims to be a Christian, but she has what she calls a wild side. She loves to party. And one night she drinks too much, and since it's now legal to use marijuana recreationally, she takes a few hits before she climbs behind the wheel of the car. She gets into an accident that leaves her paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of her life. In the process of her surgery and recovery, she repents of her sin and really commits her life to Christ. And though Susie is saved, she spends the rest of her life in the wheelchair. It didn't have to be that way. In the same way, Israel didn't have to suffer 40 years by delaying entering into the land, but they did. Even though they confessed their sin and repented and actually did what God told them originally to do, they still paid a high price for their sin. They suffered rebellion and got whooped by the Amorites. But the most tragic of all is found in verse 45. And you returned, and you wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. In a word, broken fellowship. The Israelites suffered defeat. They were very distraught over their loss of life and over the loss of the battle. Definitely they were sorry for their sin, but were they sorry because they grievously sinned against the Lord and they knew it? Or were they sorry because the Lord took away His hand of protection and allowed them to experience the consequences of their sin? The discipline of the Lord that He rendered upon them is obvious. They were barred for a time from entering the land. What a hardcore round of discipline that was. But on the other hand, there's a severe mercy here along with a strong dose of grace, the Lord's discipline here. And how so? First and foremost, by all rights, Yahweh, the suzerain, should have destroyed the vassals, Israel, because they stubbornly refused to obey him. Remember, today's story is Moses recounting the time 40 years prior to this episode where the Lord established the covenant with His people, writing with His finger the ten words carved on two tablets of stone. And we know what happened with those tablets. As God was writing those tablets on Mount Sinai, what were the people doing? They were having a fit for themselves. They were blatantly rebelling against the Lord. So what did Moses do? He punished the people for their rebellion. Moses broke the tablets at the foot of the mountain. 
He ground the calf to powder, threw the powder into the water, and made Israel drink it. And then Moses returned before the Lord and prayed for the people. And another set of tablets was made. This is significant. According to author Dr. Daniel Block, this second set of tablets showed that the Lord had not abandoned Israel. He was still their suzerain. They were still his vassals. That's grace. That's mercy. Remember how Moses described the relationship of the Lord he had with his people. In verse 31, he said, He carried them as a man carries his son. This is covenant talk. This is relationship talk. God showed his faithfulness, keeping his promise. And the Lord was absolutely committed to dealing with Israel in faithfulness to his covenant. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's often translated as loving kindness in the King James or steadfast love in the NIV. But chesed literally means covenant loyalty. The Lord is loyal and faithful to the promise he made to his people. Hallelujah. Such grace, such mercy. Now, this is huge. Think big picture. See, not only regarding Abraham and the unconditional covenant he made, that the Lord made with him all the way back in Genesis, the infinitely larger picture is that God is giving the world the Messiah. If the Lord had completely destroyed the sons of Israel because of their unfaithfulness in this story or even in the story of Mount Sinai 40 years prior, the world would not have a Messiah. And I guess that we can say that if God had wiped Israel out and he had every reason to wipe them out, there would have been no Messiah, no Christ, no Savior of the world. If no Messiah, then there would have been no church. If there had been no church, we would not be sitting here, would we? Grace United would not exist. And so we can say, praise the Lord for God's chesed. And we can gain an even richer insight in His grace and mercy in the form of a question. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? In the history of the world, in the midst of all the false religions and all the evil done in His name, God's name, and all the activities of all the governments down through the ages, and even today in your life and mine, there has never been a time when God said, hmm, that's a puzzlement. I didn't know that was going to happen. See, this episode in Deuteronomy 1 is a great reminder to us that God interacted with His people with the absolute perfect knowledge that they were going to falsely accuse Him. God knew his people were going to rebel against him, forgetting his power and provision. In other words, God knew what he was getting when he created Israel. And he knew how horribly they were going to treat their Lord and King. But Deuteronomy 1, 19 to 46, was not a snapshot, a permanent snapshot in Israel's scrapbook. No, it was merely just one frame in the movie that God was creating through Israel. See, God is the videographer. God is the director of their movie. And God is the star of the show. And Israel merely plays the bit part. Same with your life and mine. 
See, God knew what he was doing when he offered the gospel to you and to me. He knew how you and I would respond. And not once did he ever say, I didn't know Glenn was going to do that. I had no idea Kitty was going to treat me this way. And with this perfect knowledge, he still extended grace to you and to me, to Abraham and Sarah, to his rebellious sons and daughters. For God is the hero of the story. And God is the director of this drama and sometimes comedy of errors. And he will get the glory. And just like Israel, you know, the nation that God carried like a father carries his son. So the Lord carries the church to purify her, to cleanse her, to strengthen her, to enable her to stand when she cannot go on. Just like Israel, the Lord applies the discipline of His grace and shows His profound mercy. Just like Israel, the Lord does not destroy His people. Rather, He disciplines them and He purifies them. Let me quote for you the chorus of this song that we heard twice with some of us today. Thank you, my beloved, for doing that. It's great. The Lord's plan for every one of His sons and daughters is to make us like Christ. And there is only one way that that can happen. It's called refinement. But refinement requires, requires, let me underline that stomp, requires fiery trials. Let's be ever more committed to the refinement that the Lord has in store for us. And may we say like Job, When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Hear now the chorus. The refiner's fire has now become my sole desire. Purged and cleansed and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose, I choose the refiner's fire. And I will ask the question, do you choose the refiner's fire? And if not, why not? The Lord Jesus gave his all for you and for me. Can't we not do the same? The Lord wants us to become like Christ when it's all said and done. So may we choose the refiner's fire. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you know us far better than we know ourselves. Lord, you knew that by sending those spies into the land that they were going to chicken out. They were going to be afraid And they brought back that bad report. And the people were infected with fear. And they rebelled against you. But Lord, you told us that we need to train ourselves for godliness. We need to train ourselves to be pleasing to you and not to have a complaining spirit. Lord, we do live in a fallen world where we are subject to not only committing sin ourselves, but also being subject to the sins of others. And Lord, we are so quick because the enemy 
so easily and so loudly whispers into our heart and whispers into our ear, God's problem. God has done this to you. Lord, we end up falsely accusing you. And that raises your ire, and rightly so. It's not your fault that we sin. It's not your fault that we have issues. It's not your fault that sin occurs to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, help us to simply believe you, believe your word, even if it doesn't make sense. Lord, I pray that from Genesis to Revelation, we will believe every word of your revelation, every word of it, so that, Lord, we can, we can glorify your name. We thank you also, Lord, that you remember our frame. You remember that we are but dust, and you remember how frail we are. So, Lord, I pray that you would have patience with us. Be kind to us, Lord, as we continue to follow you, however haltingly, however faultingly we do. You've called us for loyalty, and you called us to loyalty. Help us, Lord, to be loyal to you. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation you've given us in Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who not only convicts us in our pre-Christian days, but also convicts us and encourages us and trains us in our Christian days. Thank you for these things, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be pleasing to you, to glorify your name. I thank you now, Lord, for our time of, of, of giving, our time of singing also. May we do these things as an offering of worship to you because we love you, because you loved us first. In Jesus' name.